Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Dear friends, welcome to Keep the Faith's ministry once again. Today we're going to examine another episode in the great exodus from Egypt. As Israel becomes more hopeful of deliverance, the Egyptians become equally desperate. Only Pharaoh and the Egyptian priests stubbornly resist. Yet the people want Pharaoh to let Israel, the Israelites go. They are the ones really suffering badly, although the plagues affected Pharaoh's palace too. But the people become afraid that the Israelites will rise up and take vengeance on them for their years of servitude. So as we begin, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we look at our stresses and circumstances in these last days, we are reminded of the fact that you are coming very soon to take us home. We ask that today as we study that your Holy Spirit will lead us to understand the times in which we live based on the experience of Israel in Egypt. Help us to see the parallels and recognize the principles involved in the Israelites' deliverance and in our own. We long to be delivered from this world. So deliver us, we pray, from sin so that you can finish your work more quickly. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 18. We will look at verse 11. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth her merchandise any more. Why do you think people won't buy the merchandise any more from the merchants of the earth? It is because the light of truth has been shined on their corruption. In Egypt, the economy was destroyed by the plagues, and it will be destroyed completely when the seven last plagues are poured out, along with everything else. The plagues ripped apart Egyptian society. There is no doubt that they could see that their gods, that they had thought would protect them, could do them no good. Of course, these gods were fake and a figment of their imagination, but they saw their gods turned against them. So it will be at the end of time. God's judgments will rip apart societies around the world because they persist in their stubbornness and rebellion. Listen to this from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 271. The nation had sustained great loss in the death of their cattle. Many of the people had been killed by the hail. The forests were broken down and the crops were destroyed. They were fast losing all that had been gained by the labor of the Hebrews. The whole land was threatened with starvation. The fruit of the land had been broken down. 
perhaps when it was just ripening. Now Moses threatened that locusts would come and eat up anything that remained. But Pharaoh's heart was still proud and stubborn. I'll read from Patriarchs and Prophets. Pharaoh's servants were terrified and pressed around Pharaoh and angrily demanded that he let the Israelites go. And Pharaoh's servants said unto him, How long shall this man be a snare unto us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Knowest thou not that Egypt is destroyed? But God was asking Pharaoh, How long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? Heaven rightly expects the greatest men of earth to humble themselves before the great Jehovah, and it is at their peril if they refuse to do it. This has been God's quarrel with princes more than once. Belshazzar did not humble his heart. Zedekiah humbled not himself before Jeremiah. Those that will not humble themselves before God God will humble. Pharaoh had sometimes pretended to humble himself, but he was neither sincere nor did he maintain it. Pharaoh was already warned of the plagues of locusts that would be sent if he would remain obstinate. In fact, Moses said in Exodus 10, 4-6, Else, if thou refuse to let my people go, tomorrow I will bring the locusts into thy coast, and they shall cover the face of the earth, that one cannot be able to see the earth, and they shall eat the residue of that which is escaped, which remaineth unto you from the hail, and shall eat every tree which groweth for you out of the field, and they shall fill thy houses and thy houses of all thy servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither thy fathers nor thy father's fathers have seen since the day that they were upon the earth unto this day. And he turned himself and went out from Pharaoh. The princes and counselors of Pharaoh were horrified, and they pled with Pharaoh to at least let some of them go and worship God. Pharaoh's attendants, his ministers of state and privy counselors, interposed to persuade him to come to some terms with Moses. They were duty-bound to represent to him the deplorable condition of the kingdom. Egypt is destroyed, they said, and advised him by all means to release his prisoners. Let the men go, they begged, for they realized what Pharaoh refused to recognize, that Moses would continue with worse plagues to them until they released the Israelites. It was like the elephant in the room that couldn't be seen by one man, but everybody else could see it. It was better to consent at the first than to be compelled at the last. But Pharaoh, in his arrogance, did not think anyone could compel him to do anything, and this attitude was going to eventually cost him his life. 
the Israelites had become a burdensome stone to the Egyptians, Zechariah 12.3, and now, at length, the princes of Egypt were willing to be rid of them. Note, it is a thing to be regretted and prevented, if possible, that a whole nation should be ruined for the pride and obstinacy of its princes. To consult the welfare of the people is the first of political laws, or at least to have perceived that the political leader is doing that. The people are hurting badly and needed relief from the heavy hand that was upon them. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. He was again going to negotiate with Moses and his God. He asked them who was going to go to worship and hold a feast to the Lord. Moses responded in Exodus 10 verse 9. And Moses said, We will go with our young and with our old, with our sons and with our daughters, and with our flocks and with our herds we will we go, for we must hold a feast unto the Lord. Pharaoh was not happy with that. He said in verse 11, Not so. Now go ye that are men, and serve the Lord, for that ye did not desire. And they were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. <clears throat> he wanted to revise the plan of God and offer a new treaty. Pharaoh consents for the Israelites to go into the wilderness to do sacrifice. But the matter in dispute was who should go. Moses insists that they should take their whole families and all their effects with them. No doubt Pharaoh thought, as many nations do today who deal with immigration, especially from poor countries, that if they had reason to return, he could be assured that they would not escape. He resolves to keep some as hostages, to oblige them to return. But those that serve God must serve him with all they have. Moses explains this, we must hold a feast. Therefore we must have our families to feast with, and our flocks and herds to sacrifice with, to the honor of God. In a great passion, Pharaoh curses them and threatens that if, at, if they offer to remove their little ones, they will do it at the peril of the little ones. Satan does all he can to hinder those that serve God themselves from bringing their children to serve him. He is a sworn enemy to early piety, knowing how destructive it is to the interests of his kingdom. Whatever would hinder us from engaging our children to the utmost in God's service, whether our own business of work or neglect or disinterest or distractions or their friends, we have reason to suspect the hand of Satan is in it. Since Moses was not into negotiations, their talks break off abruptly. Those that before went out from Pharaoh's presence were now driven out. Those will quickly hear their doom. They cannot hear their duty. Whom God intends to destroy, he delivers up to infatuation with self, and never was a man so infatuated to his own ruin.
as was Pharaoh. Now Moses ceremoniously stretched out his rod, that rod which is now the terror of the Egyptians, that rod which represents the power of God, that rod which renders the Egyptians helpless but spares the people of Israel, making a distinction between them and the Egyptians. That rod is stretched out over the land of Egypt. I can imagine Moses dramatically and slowly turning around with his stretched-out rod 360 degrees over all the land. The scripture says in Exodus 10, 13-15, And the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought locusts, and the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested in all the coasts of Egypt. Very grievous were they. Before them there was no such locusts as they, neither after them shall be such. For they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened, and they did eat every herb of the land, and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left, and there remained not any green thing in the trees, or in the herbs in the, of the field through all the land of Egypt. The invasion of the locusts, God's great army. You know God's armies are unique. They don't bear swords and mail. Instead, in this case, their weapons were their teeth. The frogs were at first a nuisance, and then a stinking nuisance but they didn't threaten the Egyptian economy or lead the Egyptians to the point of starvation. But these locusts were more severe. The Egyptians had learned when they saw Moses stretched forth his rod that something was terrible was going to happen, and they feared him. God bids Moses to stretch out his hand as if to beckon the locusts to invade the land. Moses ascribes it to the stretching out, not of his own hand, but of the rod of God, the instituted sign of God's presence with him. The locusts obey the summons and fly upon the wings of the wind, the east wind, and without number, as we are told in Psalm 105, 34, and 35. A formidable army of horses and footmen might be more easily resisted than the host of these insects. It begs the question, who then is able to stand before the great God? <clears throat> Egypt is no stranger to locusts, but these locusts are unusual. The Bible says they were very grievous. They swarmed all over Egypt and filled the sky till the land was darkened. They must have been large locusts, at least that's how I imagine them. They ate everything in sight. Chomp, 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 chew, 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 buzz, 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 chomp, chomp, chomp. They were unstoppable. Everything green vanished almost instantly from the fields, as if a curtain were pulled over them. 
The trees and plants stood leafless, and nothing was seen but the naked boughs and stalks. Everything in the vegetable kingdom was destroyed. Locusts will go after the bark of trees once there are no leaves left. So even the trees were probably stripped of bark. Locusts are usually confined to the field. But these locusts did the very thing that they don't normally do. They overwhelmed Egypt to such a degree that having destroyed the harvest or that which was left of the hail, they penetrated by the millions into the private dwellings and devoured whatsoever they could find. They got into the humblest houses and the proudest palaces, even Pharaoh's palaces. They got in their ovens, they got in their beds, and in their wardrobes, and ate the natural fibers of their clothes. They were found in every corner, stuck to their clothes, infested their food. They were everywhere and in everything. They even ate the leather of their water vessels. They got into all the storehouses, squeezing through the doors and flying through the windows. The Egyptian houses were wide open because their windows were made of lattice work, which made it very easy for the locusts to enter. And now Egypt was going to starve because there was nothing that they could eat. This was much worse than anything that had been seen before. This plague was aimed at the Egyptian god Serapis. Serapis was the god whose office was to protect the country from locusts. The Egyptians had no less than 42 temples erected in honor of this deity. But against the command of Moses, who was directed by the god of heaven and earth, Serapis was powerless. The locusts came at Moses' command, and they departed at his command. Serapis could do nothing about it. Psalm 105, 34 and 35 say, He spake, and the locusts came, and caterpillars, and that without number, and did eat up all the herbs in their land, and devoured the fruit of their ground. The point was not lost on the counselors of Pharaoh. They stood aghast at the devastation the locusts wreaked on Egypt, and they recognized that the people of Egypt were going to starve unless they imported food from somewhere else. But that was an existential threat too, because then other nations could see them as weakened and might attack them. But these scourges seemed beyond endurance, and they were filled with fear for the future. Friends, when God's judgments are poured out upon the earth, men's hearts will fail them for fear. That's what happens, because the judgments are beyond our ability to cope with them. We are rendered helpless, as were the Egyptians. Only if you are a spiritual Israelite, and love God with all your heart, so that you keep all his commandments, then you will have no fear when God's judgments are poured out all around you. The thing is, people think that God's judgments will not be any worse than what they see 
right now in the world. But God's judgments are far more intense than even the recent earthquake in Turkey. Locusts have been used by God as a devouring tool to punish, and God will use them again in the last days. Turn with me to Revelation 9, verse 3. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. The locusts predicted here are stinging locusts. They can hurt humans. You don't want to be the target of this plague in the last days. Locusts, while despicable little creatures, seem harmless individually. Yet, when God pleases, these contemptible little insects plunder man and eat the bread out of his mouth. Therefore, let our labor be not for food which is perishable and can become infested, but for food that will endure to eternal life, which cannot be invaded or corrupted. Listen to this from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 271. The nation had worshipped Pharaoh as a representative of their god, but many were now convinced that he was opposing himself to one who made all the powers of nature the ministers of his will. The Egyptian people could see it, but Pharaoh could not. Pharaoh was fast losing control of the situation and of the nation. The living God of heaven had taken the reins in his own hands, and at the end of time God will do the same. After the nations of the world have had opportunity to accept the truth and have refused and have persecuted God's people, God will show them that he is God and that they have offended him in the person of his saints. That which the people of the earth have mocked and ridiculed will become a terror and scourge to them. That which they have persistently defied and rejected will become the curse and a shock to them. And God was making a distinction between his people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians. The land of Goshen didn't have one locust. It was as if an invisible barrier was erected and the locust would not cross that barrier. All Egypt trembled before the awful outpouring of divine judgment upon them. There was a fear that the slaves would rise up and get revenge for the wrongs that have been done to them. Everywhere men were asking the question with bated breath, What will come next? Pharaoh calls for Moses and Aaron. He pleads with them to stop the plague. In Exodus 10 verse 11, he drove them out of his palace as if he wanted nothing more to do with them. But now he calls for them in all haste and makes polite entreaties with as much respect as he had dismissed them with disdain. (laughs) Pharaoh wasn't repentant. He was just being expedient. Verses 16 and 17 tell us what he said. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste. 
And he said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive, I pray thee, my sin only this once, and entreat the Lord your God, that he may take away from me this death only. Though Pharaoh sees his own folly in the slights and affronts that he put on God and on his ambassadors, and seems at least to repent of it, when God convinces men of sin and humbles him for it, it lies heavily upon their consciences and wrings from their mouths confessions that are unexpected. When Pharaoh said, The Lord your God, he was acknowledging his power, but he wasn't submissive to his authority. He treated God as a potent enemy who he was willing to be at war with, even a losing war. He did not care about treating God as a rightful prince to whom he was willing to submit with loyal affection. True penitence means turning away from your crimes that you have committed against God and forsake them. When Pharaoh says, forgive this once, he in effect promises not to offend in like manner any more. Yet he seems loath to express that promise because he does not say anything about letting the people go. A counterfeit repentance a counterfeit repentance commonly cheats men of what they would experience and leaves them empty, rejected, and frustrated. In this case, Pharaoh actually entreats Moses and Aaron to pray for him. There are those who, in their distress, implore the help of other people's prayers, but have no mind to pray for themselves. They have no true love to God, nor any delight in communion with Him. Pharaoh only wants that this death might be taken away, not his sins. He asked that the plague of locusts be removed, not the plague of his hard heart, which is far more dangerous. I think at the end of time, God will disrupt the power structures that oppressed God's people as he disrupted the power structures of Egypt. The surveillance state will collapse. Artificial intelligence will be useless. It will frustrate and anger the authorities and the masses that Sabbath keepers are being obviously miraculously protected. Moses knew the contest and the plagues were not over yet. And sure enough, Pharaoh foolishly hardened his heart again and refused to let God's people go. So the Lord told Moses to stretch forth his hand, which meant to stretch forth his rod toward heaven and darkness would descend upon Egypt. To the Egyptians, that rod now meant a lot of trouble. And to see Moses thrust his rod into the sky must have been terrifying. What now, they must have exclaimed. They knew that rod brought judgment and scourges that destroyed Egypt both economically and socially. Now the rod was going to lock them down so they literally couldn't move. The Egyptians, and especially Pharaoh, would have time to reflect 
on their course of rebellion. Suddenly a deep darkness fell upon Egypt, like a funeral pall over the whole country. It was a most dreadful, gloomy blackness that seemed like an omen of worse things to come. The darkness was so thick it seemed you could feel it. Even their fires and candles that gave them light were put out, maybe because of the dampness and clamminess of the air. The Bible says they saw not one another. Verse 23, They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days, but all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. The wicked are threatened that the spark of his fire shall not shine, Isaiah fifty eleven, even the sparks of his own kindling, as they are called. Job eighteen five and 6 says, Yea, the light of the wicked shall be put out, and the spark of his fire shall not shine. The light shall be dark in his tabernacle, and his candle shall be put out with him. At the end of, the, of time, Rome, the seat of the beast, will suffer a similar kind of darkness. Notice Revelation 18, verse 23. The light of the candle shall shine no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth, for by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. This plague of darkness dealt a heavy blow to one of the greatest gods of Egypt, the sun god Ra, or Isis, who had been continuously worshipped from the earliest times of that country's known history. In a land which hardly ever saw clouds in the sky, the sun was, was recognized as a never-failing power to, which provided warmth, light, life, and growth to the whole world. And every Egyptian king considered himself as a son of Ra, and carried this expression in his title. But the darkness also dealt a heavy blow to another of their gods. The Egyptians also worshipped Osiris, the moon god. Together, Isis and Osiris controlled the light and the elements. The Egyptians could see that their gods were powerless against the God of Heaven. The darkness was so oppressive that the Egyptians felt like they couldn't move. They felt locked down. They had locked down the Israelites in slavery. Now God would lock them down in darkness and fear. They couldn't see to move around. No one, man, woman, or child, left his house for three days. This gave them time for reflection. They felt that they weren't safe, and they had lost control of their lives. Fear gripped them. This couldn't end well. It seemed like an omen of some impending catastrophe, but they could still amend their ways if they were willing. While the darkness struck fear into the heart of the Egyptians, it also gave them time to think and reflect on their course of action. If they wanted to, they could see that they were in rebellion to a power that was far above their ability to cope with it. They knew their history. 
how the, that Joseph had saved them and their country from disaster many years before. But their priest had convinced the Pharaoh and his counselors that they were in danger from the Israelites becoming too powerful. Now they were up against the God who was way too powerful for them. Would they amend their course of action and bow to his authority? Or would they continue their rebellion and suffer the worst blow of all? From his point of view, God did not want to destroy the Egyptians and gave them time to stop and consider whether to submit to God's requirements. If they wanted to, they could reflect on the compassion and kindness of God, even in the judgments that had already fallen. They were relatively mild at first. Then they began to be increasingly destructive of the beasts and of the vegetation. Now the risk of further plagues would only be directed at their persons. There is nothing left of Egypt to do any further damage. They were faced with starvation and death as it was. So God halted them for three days and locked them down in darkness to arrest their course and give them opportunity to submit. From Patriarchs and Prophets, page 272. The sun and moon were objects of worship to the Egyptians. In this mysterious darkness, the people and their gods alike were smitten by the power that had undertaken the cause of the bondmen. Yet fearful as it was, this judgment is an evidence of God's compassion and his unwillingness to destroy. He would give the people time for reflection and repentance before bringing upon them the last and most terrible of the plagues. God is so merciful to the obstinate. He wants them to be saved. So he gives them conditions and circumstances that will give them time to reflect and see the evil of their ways. He also gives them incentive to repent and turn from their wicked ways and be reconciled to God. The Egyptians could see the distinction between them and Israel. The Israelites had light. There was no oppressive darkness in the land of Goshen. They could go about their daily life without any hindrance. This must have impressed many of the Egyptian people. The darkness was designed to give the Egyptians a spiritual lesson, too. They were in darkness of paganism and idolatry. God gave them darkness to bring them to their senses if he could. He was really trying to help them see that they had become cruel and oppressive of others. They needed to respect his law and their fellow human beings, and this they could not do while they were absorbed in their attitudes and pagan concepts. God was trying to break the power of their religion and his priests and turn them again to God and his law. The plague of darkness was fearful indeed, 
and most dreadful. It is actually listed as the first of the ten in Psalm 108, verse 25, even though it was one of the last. He sent darkness and made it dark, and they rebelled not against his word. Then the rest of the plagues were listed in their exact order. So the darkness was especially deep and oppressive to the Egyptians, but the Israelites had light in the land of Goshen. That could not fail to make an important impression on the minds of the Egyptians. Their pagan gods were useless, both in this case and in their religion in general. The contempt heaped upon their gods should have convinced them that they should totally abandon them. It was a warning against further rebellion, too. Indeed, they could not oppose the lockdown of the deep darkness. So the Bible says they rebelled not against his word. They couldn't do anything about it, and the people were ready to let them go. It was the priests and Pharaoh that still worked to thwart God's plans. At the end of time, another darkness will fall. This time it will fall on spiritual Egypt, which is just as rebellious against God's plan as was ancient Egypt. We read about this darkness in Revelation 16, 10, and 11. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast. And his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain, and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and repented not of their deeds. Rome, the seat of the beast, will suffer a darkness similar to what the Egyptians experienced. The Bible says that his kingdom was full of darkness and they were in pain from the sores that rose up on their bodies because they repented not. Notice also that the darkness was associated with great pain and they gnawed their tongues for pain. So apparently this darkness and the darkness of the Egyptians was painful. While we don't understand everything about this, We take it for granted because of what the word of God says. But Rome's priests and all her servants in Rome will experience pain during their plague of darkness. The darkness of an evil plague is not like the darkness of night. The darkness of night is a good thing. But the darkness of a plague is something else altogether. So it appears that God will inflict a special punishment and judgment on Rome and her ministers or priests because they are determined to oppose God. They are responsible for the persecution of his saints through many centuries and especially in the last days. In fact, the Bible says that they are responsible for all the blood that was shed on the earth through all time. Notice Revelation 18.24. And in her it was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. So Rome is responsible for all the righteous 
that were slain on the earth of all time. Though she wasn't around for 4,000 years, she still has the spirit of persecution that has affected the saints of God during the whole earth, from the slaying of Abel to the last martyr that will be slain at the end of time. But she is certainly responsible for more than that. She has instigated wars that have slain millions. She has ordered assassinations and killings. She has orchestrated famines and distress upon nations and millions of people. She has phenomenally increased the poverty and misery of multitudes, which has also been deadly. She has been responsible for the spread of diseases and pestilences, which have also led to the deaths of many people. But especially will she be punished for afflicting the saints of God. The darkness on Egypt was a symbol of the spiritual darkness of paganism, and it was a prophetic prototype of the darkness that will fall upon Rome, as she is a prophetic prototype of Rome's religion. But for the Egyptians, it wasn't too late for them to repent and mend their ways. But Rome's darkness is also a symbol of Rome's own spiritual wickedness and darkness. And it is then too late for them to make a change, for the close of probation has already passed by the time this plague is meted out to them. It is actually punishment for their wickedness and their idolatry. It isn't mixed with mercy or a time for repentance. According to Jewish tradition, the darkness that Egypt experienced was terrifying because there were apparitions of evil spirits or dreadful sounds and rumors which the spirits made, and they were smitten by their own consciences as well. In this context, it is very interesting that Psalm seventy-eight forty-nine says, He cast upon them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, and indignation, and trouble, by sending evil angels among them. No doubt evil angels were attending the Egyptians to try to make them stronger to resist God's counsel through Moses and to keep God's people in bondage, both through literal slavery as well as to slavery in sin and idolatry that the Egyptians foisted on the Israelites. Satan tried all of his spiritualistic arts on them to keep them going in a way against God. He will do the same at the end of time. Today there is an unprecedented rise in spiritualism in all sectors of society, whether it's retail marketing, Hollywood, gaming, or society itself and the people in it. He is trying to bind men in bundles to be burned, bind them and keep them in sin and slavery to their passions. The Egyptians were so terrified that they feared to go from the bed to the chair or from the chair to the bed. Every man stayed in his place. Thus they were silent in darkness. Now Pharaoh had time to consider whether to stop his opposition to God. 
Spiritual darkness is the same as spiritual bondage, and Pharaoh and all his men could see that they were in dark bondage to paganism. While Satan blinds their eyes that they see not, he also binds their hands and feet that they may not work for God, nor move towards heaven, nor obey him. Never was a mind so blinded as was Pharaoh's. Never was the air so darkened as was Egypt's. Only the final plagues will actually be worse. Matthew 4.16 says, The people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which the region and shadow of death light is sprung up. The people that sat in darkness of spiritual bondage saw the great light of freedom. Darkness represents slavery to sin. Light represents freedom in Christ, for Christ is the light of the world. Satan tries to keep men in darkness, but Jesus gives them freedom through his life and death on the cross and his ministry in the heavenly courts above. Those that want to be free, God will give them opportunity to see the great light and come to it. And during the latter rain, God's light will shine upon his people. It will destroy the darkness of Rome, and many people will escape the thraldom of papal superstitions and delusions. Listen to the effect of this in Isaiah 60, verses 2 and 3. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall rise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. The Egyptians, controlled by Satan, by their cruelty, would have extinguished the lamp of Israel and quenched their light. So consequently, God gave them darkness, real, oppressive darkness, to teach them that what they had done was very wrong. The land of Goshen, however, was full of light. Wherever there is a child of God, a child of light, there is light, even in the dark world. When God made this distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians, which one of the Egyptians would not have preferred the poorest cottage of an Israelite to the finest palace of an Egyptian? Pharaoh again called for Moses and Aaron. Fear wrung from Pharaoh a further concession. He told Moses that the Israelites could go and worship, but they must leave their flocks and herds behind. Pharaoh wanted to have some assurance that the Israelites would come back. So leaving their economic livelihood and resources in Egypt would assure that. But again, Moses did not enter into negotiations. There shall not an hoof be left behind, he declared. <laughs> Listen to him speak in Exodus ten twenty-five and 26. And Moses said, Thou must give us also sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice unto the Lord our God. Our cattle also shall go with us. There shall not be an hoof left behind, 
for thereof must we take to serve this, the Lord our God. And we know not with what we must serve the Lord until we come thither. We will take everything, all our people, all our possessions, all our beasts, and all our substance. Everything must go with us. Pharaoh was convinced that they would not come back. He had suspected this all along, but he'd been working on the assumption that he could first refuse to let them go, and then, when that wasn't successful, negotiate with them to retain their servitude. But that was not God's purpose, and Pharaoh set himself to work against God. Anyone from the king or president to the very common worker who works against God will end up ultimately in disaster, and darkness will be his portion forever. Pharaoh was frustrated. Everything he tried had failed. Every tack that he took seemed powerless to thwart the Israelites' plan. He dismissed Moses in anger and told him to get out of his sight. Verse 28. And Pharaoh said unto him, Get thee from me, and take heed to thyself. See my face no more, for in that day thou seest my face, thou shalt die. Moses complied, but when obstinate men turn away God's mercy and his kindness, they are left to themselves, and God cannot reach them any more. Imagine Pharaoh trying to threaten Moses, who had God's great power to protect him at his disposal. Impotent malice. God had given Moses a very awe-inspiring persona with the Egyptians. Exodus 11.3 says, Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. The people of Egypt feared Moses, and the king dared not harm him, for the people looked on him as alone possessing the power to remove the plagues. They desired that the, the people of Israel should be permitted to leave Egypt, but it was the king and the priests that opposed the demands of Moses to the very last. The priests knew about Joseph and the impact that he had on their adherence and their income and power. Their power and status had been undermined by the Israelites because Joseph had been so effective. And they saw interest in their religion declining among the Egyptian people. They had planned their strategy for a long time. They were responsible for training the future kings in their religion, and they convinced the young future monarch of the need to promote the Egyptian religion and to suppress any other forms of worship. They were determined to get revenge for what Joseph had accomplished. They determined to restore their power. And that's the way Satan works. He has to take his time but he is determined to do what he can to restore his power and authority in this world. America was very instrumental in breaking the power of Rome over the world, and Satan is determined to restore his power by making America and other developed countries 
remove freedom from their people. And he's being quite effective these days. Friends, we who are living at the end of time can see this same kind of idolatry developing in the extreme. Men worship themselves and money and and power, and they don't care what God thinks. The result will be death, just like it was to the Egyptians, by their own choice and by their own deeds. God plans to make a distinction between his people and the world. He plans to do that through the keeping holy the Sabbath of the fourth commandment. He plans to make them very powerful with the support of the Holy Spirit. They will have light in life, and he will use them to bring the last few souls across the line to faithfulness to God. Don't you want to be part of that number? I do. Let us pray. Dear Father in heaven, we recognize the signs of the times, and we are impressed that the end is near. The conditions in the world are getting very wicked in the extreme, and you want your people to reflect the light of heaven amid the darkness of this wicked world. Please, Father, may we earnestly seek your face. Please, may we have your Holy Spirit to inspire us and to energize us to be faithful and to witness. Please help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
We hope you have been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you for your support. The song you have just heard is called Oh for a Closer Walk, played by Henry Higgins. It is recorded on a CD with other beautiful hymns called Day by Day. If you would like a copy of the CD, just send $16 postpaid and we'll gladly send you one. International listeners should send $20 USD. Be sure and mention the Day by Day CD. The following is our Prophetic Intelligence Briefing, a feature that brings you current events in light of prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis and the coming of the Lord. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month, Week of Prayer for Christian Unity, a moment of dialogue and prayer in Cecina. The ecumenical prayer meeting organized by the Diocesan Ecumenical Commission in collaboration with the representatives of other churches was held on Friday 20, January at 1800 in the Church of St. Anna and Giochino in Piazza del Popolo. Present were Monsignor Douglas Regatiri from the Diocese of the Catholic Church of Sarsina, Elder Giovanni Benenni from the Seventh-day Adventist Church, Father Silva Sass from the Romanian Orthodox Church, Father Michel David from the Romanian Eastern Rite Catholic Church, for the Ukrainian Eastern Rite Catholic Church, Father Vasil Romonik. The participants of the various communities in relation to the size of the Church of St. Anna were numerous. Among them were also several representatives of the city institutions, the deputy mayor, Christian Castori, and the Counselor for Social Services, Carmelina Labruso, as well as some municipal counselors, a participation that goes in the direction of an ever greater collaboration between the variegated religious and civil components of our city. This year's moment of prayer centered on the theme taken from the verse of Isaiah 117, Learn to do good, seek justice proposed by the Council of Churches and elaborated by an ecumenical group from Minnesota, which proposed the subsidy, saw some lay faithful as protagonists who expressed testimonies of dialogue and integration experienced in our social fabric. The celebration ended with the symbolic construction of bridges made up of stones carried by each participant towards the altar and placed on the banner with the inscription, peace and justice to underline everyone's commitment in this direction. At the end of the liturgical meeting, those present were invited to move to the adjacent rooms of the Cultural Association in Lucci, made available by the sculptor Leonardo Lucci for a convivial moment that would allow dialogue and mutual understanding to continue. A photographic exhibition proposed by the Ukrainian community had been set up there. The exhibition entitled The Price of Freedom illustrates the damage caused by war to people and things and will continue until February 3rd. 
What are SDAs doing here? Quote, the wide diversity of belief in the Protestant churches is regarded by many as decisive proof that no effort to secure a forced uniformity can ever be made. But there has been for years in churches of the Protestant faith a strong and growing sentiment in favor of a union based upon common points of doctrine. To secure such a union, the discussion of subjects upon which all were not agreed, however important they might be from a Bible standpoint, must necessarily be waived. Great Controversy, page 444. Next, now in production, ammunition for the next world war. The German technology chain Gravis, which cooperates closely with Apple, will no longer accept cash payments from today, Monday. As the company confirmed when asked by Spiegel, this applies to all branches, 40 nationwide and regardless of the purchase value. This means that even if you only want to buy an accessory from Gravis for a few euros, coins and bills from your wallet will not help you in the future. The company says the proportion of cash payments has been negligible for around two years. Only a small one-digit percentage of customers still pay cash at Gravis today. The chain also emphasizes that its decision was made after a successful test phase in selected stores based on the above average acceptance of cashless payments. Cashless payments is simple secure, fast from the customer's point of view, and has long since been learned. With the step, actively follow the path of your customers. It's also about cost. Behind this is not only an orientation towards customer behavior, but also business calculations. For us as a retailer, cashless payment is cheaper, easier, and it enables faster processes. Gravis summarizes his own advantages. The company can keep its prices stable for longer for customers. Gravis does not fear legal trouble. The legal situation provides that legal tender can be excluded if information is provided about it. This is done through information in the stores, in the form of clearly visible displays in the checkout area and via the general terms and conditions, GTC. And what about customer displeasure? Gravis replies, be prepared that there may still be a need for explanation at the beginning, but assume that most of our customers can understand the advantages of cashless payment. An emotional topic. Cash is an emotionally charged topic, particularly in Germany, a country where cash is still used comparatively often. For a company like Gravis, an argument in favor of cash payment would be that it has not been a problem to buy technical devices and accessories anonymously with this means of payment. And of course, paying cash as one of several payment methods makes customers more flexible. Last spring, card payments were temporarily no longer possible at numerous retailers due to technical problems with a certain widely used payment terminal. So far, you could pay for every product at Gravis in cash, they say. With its 40 branches, the company is one of the best-known German technology dealers and is present in Hamburg, Cologne, and Berlin, for example. According to its own statements, 
It is Germany's largest authorized Apple retail chain and the largest certified Apple service partner in all of Europe. The company belongs to Freenet AG. Cashless transactions make it easy for governments to control and restrict buying and selling on individuals as well as large swaths of people. Quote, the time is coming when we cannot sell at any price. The decree will soon go forth, prohibiting men to buy or sell of any man save he that had the mark of the beast. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 152. Next, Pope says Vatican administration is sick with power and greed. The Vatican's top administrators would have been expecting an exchange of pleasantries at their annual Christmas meeting with Pope Francis on Monday. Instead, he chose the occasion to issue a stinging critique, telling the priests, bishops, and cardinals who run the Curia, the central administration of the Roman Catholic Church, that careerism, scheming, and greed had infected them with spiritual Alzheimer's. Francis, the first non-European pope in 1,300 years, has refused many of the trappings of office and made plain his determination to bring the church's hierarchy closer to its 1.2 billion members. To that end, he has set out to reform the Italian-dominated Curia, whose power struggles and leaks were widely held responsible for Benedict XVI's decision last year to become the first pope in six centuries to resign. Quote, The Curia needs to change to improve. A Curia that does not criticize itself, that does not bring itself up to date, that does not try to improve, is a sick body, he said in a somber address. He listed no fewer than 15 sicknesses and temptations, from the spiritual Alzheimer's of those who had become enthralled by worldly goods and power to the existential schizophrenia of those who had succumbed to a joyless, hard-hearted mindset. Francis said some in the Curia acted as if they were immortal, immune, or even indispensable. In apparent reference to retired cardinals who remain in the Vatican and continue to exert influence. He told his audience that too many of them suffered from rivalry and vainglory, superiors favored protégés and underlings fawned on bosses to further careers. Others fed gossip or false information to the media. But the Pope did finish on an upbeat note. Before wishing them all a happy Christmas, Francis urged the Vatican's administrators to be more joyful, saying how much good a dose of humor could do. Quote, And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Revelation 18, 2. Next, Woke Scooby-Doo Reboot, Velma, gets destroyed by reviewers for pushing nude scenes, drugs, and LGBTQ agenda. The new Scooby-Doo Reboot, Velma, is being slammed for being overtly woke and for straying far from the innocent and beloved cartoon about a talking dog that helps solve mysteries. Velma is the prequel to the Hanna-Barbera animated series for children that debuted in 1969. 
The new HBO Max show has a rating of TVMA for sex, nudity, violence, gore, profanity, and intense scenes, according to IMDb. The main characters are high school students who are about 15 years old. The reboot features actress Mindy Kaling as the voice for Velma Stinkley. The Chicago Sun-Times detailed the diverse cast. Quote, Velma is South Asian and gay. Daphne is an adopted Asian girl with lesbian cop parents and Norville is black. Fred, the entitled heir to an accessories fortune who turns out to be more than just a vanilla villain when Velma slips him a copy of the feminine mystique and inspires his great awakening and new obsession with the gender pay gap, the Guardian said. Don't expect to see a talking Great Dane. There actually is no Scooby-Doo, the dog in the TV show. The rap described the first episode. Things kick off not just with a murdered high school girl, but with her brain cut out of her oozing corpse by a next-level serial killer. According to Polygon, the premiere starts with two cockroaches boning and then immediately segues to a nude girl's locker room shower fight between characters having a metatextual argument about premiere episodes using nudity to cynically gain viewers' attention. Velma and Daphne kiss in the animated series, according to Collider. Daphne is a drug dealer. The Chicago Sun-Times revealed a conversation about dealing drugs between Velma and Daphne. Daphne, according to TV, it's morally okay to deal drugs if your life is just kind of crappy. Like your kid's sick, you're a widow with a mortgage, you have to live on a lake in Missouri. Velma, those are all white people, Daphne. Minorities on TV can only deal drugs to escape poverty. The Guardian said of the woke reboot, Against the retro, drippy backdrop, though, Kaling weaves in jokes about the paradoxes that go hand-in-hand with femininity, patriarchy, and power. According to The Hollywood Reporter, I speak truth without a filter, like every comedian before me. Pound me, too, declares Velma. Never mind that the line doesn't make a ton of sense coming from a proud feminist teenager in 2023. Velma debuted this week and has already been obliterated by negative reviews. The show has an abysmal 1.8 rating out of 10 on IMDb. On Rotten Tomatoes, Velma has a 53% score from critics and an atrocious 7% rating from the audience. Quote, It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Luke 17, 28, and 30. Next, theologian and ecumenist Bert B. Beach died at 94. The Swiss-born American theologian and campaigner for religious freedom Bert Beverly Beach is dead. He died at the age of 94 on December 14 in Silver Spring, Maryland, USA. The Adventist pastor is considered an important theologian of the 20th century Adventist. Beach was Secretary General of the International Association for Religious Freedom, IRLA, until 1995. He served in numerous offices in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He was well-respected in international ecumenical circles 
as Director of Public Affairs for the Seventh-day Adventist General Conference from 1980 through 1995, and as General Secretary of the Seventh-day Adventist Church Council for Interchurch Relations from 1980 through 2005. From 1965 to the 1990s, he was the Seventh-day Adventist liaison and advisor at the World Council of Churches in Geneva. From 1970 to 2003, he served as Secretary of the Conference of Secretaries of Christian World Communions. Beach has published numerous books and articles in several languages, including Vatican II, Bridging the Abyss, 1968, Ecumenism, Boone or Bane, 1974, Bright Candle of Courage, 1989, Rotating the World with Rotary, 1991, Ambassador for Liberty, 2015. Dr. Beach has received several honorary awards, including a special resolution from the Maryland State Senate, 1984, for his contribution to religious freedom, a Paul Harris Fellow of Rotary International, 1984, and a Doctorate of Theology Honoris Causa from the Christian Theological Academy in Warsaw, Poland. Bert Beach did more to make the Seventh-day Adventist Church ecumenical than most people realize. His legacy is one of the worst for fraternizing with Rome as a church leader. By giving the Medal of Freedom to the Pope, he galvanized his legacy of leading the SDA Church to compromise with Rome. Rome's obituary is a testimony of their appreciation of his activity. Quote, The Lord has pronounced a curse upon those who take from or add to the scriptures. The great I Am has decided what shall constitute the rule of faith and doctrine, and He has designed that the Bible shall be a household book. The church that holds to the Word of God is irreconcilably separated from Rome. Protestants were once thus apart from this great church of apostasy, but they have approached more nearly to her and are still in the path of reconciliation to the Church of Rome. Rome never changes. Her principles have not altered in the least. She has not lessened the breach between herself and Protestants. They have done all the advancing. But what does this argue for the Protestantism of this day? It is the rejection of Bible truth which makes men approach to infidelity. It is a backsliding church that lessens the distance between itself and the papacy. The Signs of the Times, February 19, 1894. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.